16. Our Puritan fathers may have read the story for religious instruction, but all classes of men have read it because they found in it a true personal experience told with strength, interest, humor, in a word, with all the qualities that such a story should possess. Young people have read it, first, for its intrinsic worth, because the dramatic interest of the story lured them on to the very end, and second, because it was their introduction to true allegory. The child with his imaginative mind the man also, who has preserved his simplicity naturally personifies objects, and takes pleasure in giving them powers of thinking and speaking like himself. Bunyan was the first writer to appeal to this pleasant and natural inclination in a way that all could understand. Add to this the fact that Pilgrim's Progress was the only book having any story interest in the great majority of English and American homes for a full century, and we have found the real reason for its wide reading. The Holy War, published in 1665, is the first important work of Bunyan. It is a prose paradise lost, and would undoubtedly be known as a remarkable allegory were it not overshadowed by its great rival, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, published in 1666, twelve years before Pilgrim's Progress, is the work from which we obtain the clearest insight into Bunyan's remarkable life and to a man with historical or antiquarian tastes it is still excellent reading. In 1682 appeared The Life and Death of Mr. Badman, a realistic character study which is a precursor of the modern novel, and in 1684 the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, showing the journey of Christiana and her children to the city of all delight. Besides these Bunyan published a multitude of treatises and sermons, all in the same style, direct, simple, convincing expressing every thought and emotion perfectly in words that even a child can understand. Many of these are masterpieces, admired by workingmen and scholars alike for their thought and expression. Take, for instance, The Heavenly Footman, put it side by side with the best work of Latimer, and the resemblance in style is startling. It is difficult to realize that one work came from an ignorant tinker and the other from a great scholar, both engaged in the same general work. As Bunyan's one book was the Bible, we have here a suggestion of its influence in all our prose literature. Minor prose writers the Puritan period is generally regarded as one destitute of literary interest, but that was certainly not the result of any lack of books or writers. Says Burton in his Anatomy of Melancholy, I have new books every day, pamphlets, currentos, stories, whole catalogues of volumes of all sorts, new paradoxes, opinions, schisms heresies, controversies in philosophy and religion, now come tidings of weddings, maskings, entertainments, jubilees, embassies, sports, plays, then again, as in a new ship scene, treasons, cheatings, tricks, robberies, enormous villainies in all kinds, funerals, deaths, new discoveries, expeditions, now comical, then tragical matters, so the record continues till one rubs his eyes and thinks he must have picked up by mistake the last literary magazine, and for all these kaleidoscopic events there were awaiting a multitude of writers, ready to seize the abundant material and turn it to literary account for a tract, an article, a volume, or an encyclopedia. If one were to recommend certain of these books as expressive of this age of outward storm and inward calm, there are three that deserve more than a passing notice, namely, the religious Medici, holy living, and the complete angler. The first was written by a busy physician, a supposedly scientific man at that time, the second by the most learned of English churchmen, 
and the third by a simple merchant and fisherman. Strangely enough, these three great books the reflections of nature, science, and revelation all interpret human life alike and tell the same story of gentleness, charity, and noble living. If the age had produced only these three books, we could still be profoundly grateful to it for its inspiring message. Robert Burton 1577-1640 Burton is famous chiefly as the author of The Anatomy of Melancholy, one of the most astonishing books in all literature, which appeared in 1621. Burton was a clergyman of the established church, an incomprehensible genius, given to broodings and melancholy and to reading of every conceivable kind of literature. Thanks to his wonderful memory, everything he read was stored up for use or ornament, till his mind resembled a huge curiosity shop. All his life he suffered from hypochondria, but curiously traced his malady to the stars rather than to his own liver. It is related of him that he used to suffer so from despondency that no help was to be found in medicine or theology, his only relief was to go down to the river and hear the bargemen swear at one another. Burton's anatomy was begun as a medical treatise on morbidness, arranged and divided with all the exactness of the schoolman's demonstration of doctrines, but it turned out to be an enormous hodgepodge of quotations and references to authors, known and unknown, living and dead, which seemed to prove chiefly that much study is a weariness to the flesh. By some freak of taste it became instantly popular, and was proclaimed one of the greatest books in literature. A few scholars still explore it with delight as a mine of classic wealth, but the style is hopelessly involved, and to the ordinary reader most of his numerous references are now as a meaning as a hyper-Jacobian surface. Sir Thomas Brown 1605-1682. Brown was a physician who, after much study and travel, settled down to his profession in Norwich, but even then he gave far more time to the investigation of natural phenomena than to the barbarous practices which largely constituted the art of medicine in his day. He was known far and wide as a learned doctor and an honest man, whose scientific studies had placed him in advance of his age, and whose religious views were liberal to the point of heresy. With this in mind, it is interesting to note, as a sign of the times, that this most scientific doctor was once called to give expert testimony in the case of two old women who were being tried for the capital crime of witchcraft. He testified under oath that the fits were natural but heightened by the devil's cooperating with the witches, at whose instance he the alleged devil did the villainies. Brown's great work is the Religio Medici, i.e., the religion of a physician 1642, which met with most unusual success. Hardly ever was a book published in Britain, says Oldies, a chronicler who wrote nearly a century later, that made more noise than the Religio Medici. Its success may be due largely to the fact that, among thousands of religious works, it was one of the few which saw in nature a profound revelation, and which treated purely religious subjects in a reverent, kindly, tolerant way, without ecclesiastical bias. It is still, therefore, excellent reading, but it is not so much the matter as the manner the charm, the gentleness, the remarkable prose style which has established the book as one of the classics of our literature. Two other works of Brown are Vulgar Errors 1646. A curious combination of scientific and credulous research in the matter of popular superstition, and urn burial, a treatise suggested by the discovery of Roman burial urns at Walsingham. It began as an inquiry into the various methods of burial, but ended in a dissertation on the vanity of earthly hope and ambitions. From a literary point of view it is Brown's best work, 
but is less read than the religio Medici. Thomas Fuller 1608-1661. Fuller was a clergyman and royalist whose lively style and witty observations would naturally place him with the gay Caroline poets. His best-known works are The Holy War, The Holy State and the Profane State, Church History of Britain, and The History of the Worthies of England. The Holy and Profane State is chiefly a biographical record, the first part consisting of numerous historical examples to be imitated, the second of examples to be avoided. The Church History is not a scholarly work, notwithstanding its author's undoubted learning, but is a lively and gossipy account which has at least one virtue that it entertains the reader. The word of these, the most widely read of his works, is a racy account of the important men of England. Fuller traveled constantly for years, collecting information from out-of-the-way sources and gaining a minute knowledge of his own country. This, with his overflowing humor and numerous anecdotes and illustrations, makes lively and interesting reading. Indeed, we hardly find a dull page in any of his numerous books. Jeremy Taylor 1613-1667. Taylor was the greatest of the clergymen who made this period famous. A man who, like Milton, upheld a noble ideal in storm and calm, and himself lived it nobly. He has been called, the Shakespeare of divines, and, a kind of Spencer in a cassock, and both descriptions apply to him very well. His writings, with their exuberant fancy and their noble diction, belong rather to the Elizabethan than to the Puritan age. From the large number of his works to stand out as representative of the man himself, the liberty of prophesying 1646, which Hallam calls the first plea for tolerance in religion, on a comprehensive basis and on deep-seated foundations, and the rules and exercises of holy living 1650. To the latter might be added its companion volume, Holy Dying, published in the following year, The Holy Living and Dying, as a single volume was for many years read in almost every English cottage, with Baxter Saints Rest, Pilgrim's Progress, and the King James Bible. It often constituted the entire library of multitudes of Puritan homes, and as we read its noble words and breathe its gentle spirit, we cannot help wishing that our modern libraries were gathered together on the same thoughtful foundations. Richard Baxter 1615-1691 this, busiest man of his age, strongly suggests Bunyan in his life and writings. Like Bunyan, he was poor and uneducated, a nonconformist minister, exposed continually to insult and persecution, and, like Bunyan, he threw himself heart and soul into the conflicts of his age, and became by his public speech a mighty power among the common people. And like Jeremy Taylor, who wrote for the learned, and whose involved sentences and classical allusions are sometimes hard to follow. Baxter went straight to his mark, appealing directly to the judgment and feeling of his readers. The number of his works is almost incredible when one thinks of his busy life as a preacher and the slowness of manual writing. In all, he left nearly 170 different works, which if collected would make 50 or 60 volumes, as he wrote chiefly to influence men on the immediate questions of the day. Most of this work has fallen into oblivion. His two most famous books are The Saints of Everlasting Rest and A Call to the Unconverted, both of which were exceedingly popular, running through scores of successive editions, and have been widely read in our own generation. Isaac Walton 1593-1683 Walton was a small tradesman of London, who preferred trout brooks and good reading to the profits of business and the doubtful joys of a city life, so at fifty years, when he had saved a little money, he left the city and followed his heart out into the country.
he began his literary work, or rather his recreation, by writing his famous lives, kindly and readable appreciations of Dunn, Watton, Hooker, Herbert, and Sanderson, which stand at the beginning of modern biographical writing. In 1653 appeared the complete Angler, which has grown steadily in appreciation, and which is probably more widely read than any other book on the subject of fishing. It begins with a conversation between a falconer, a hunter, and an angler, but the angler soon does most of the talking. As fishermen sometimes do, the hunter becomes a disciple, and learns by the easy method of hearing the fisherman discourse about his art. The conversations, it must be confessed, are often diffuse and pedantic, but they only make us feel most comfortably sleepy, as one invariably feels after a good day's fishing. So kindly is the spirit of the angler. So exquisite his appreciation of the beauty of the earth and sky, that one returns to the book, as to a favorite trout stream, with the undying expectation of catching something. Among a thousand books on angling it stands almost alone in possessing a charming style, and so it will probably be read as long as men go fishing. Best of all, it leads to a better appreciation of nature, and it drops little moral lessons into the reader's mind as gently as one casts a fly to a wary trout so that one never suspects his better nature is being angled for. Though we have sometimes seen anglers catch more than they need, or sneak ahead of brother fishermen to the best pools, we are glad, for Walton's sake, to overlook such unaccountable exceptions, and agree with the milkmaid that we love all anglers. They be such honest, civil, quiet men. Summary of the Puritan period. The half-century between 1625 and 1675 is called the Puritan period for two reasons, first, because Puritan standards prevailed for a time in England, and second, because the greatest literary figure during all these years was the Puritan, John Milton. Historically the age was one of tremendous conflict, the Puritan struggled for righteousness and liberty, and because he prevailed, the age is one of moral and political revolution. In his struggle for liberty the Puritan overthrew the corrupt monarchy, beheaded Charles I and established the Commonwealth under Cromwell. The Commonwealth lasted but a few years, and the restoration of Charles I in 1660 is often put as the end of the Puritan period. The age has no distinct limits, but overlaps the Elizabethan period on one side, and the Restoration period on the other. The age produced many writers, a few immortal books, and one of the world's great literary leaders. The literature of the age is extremely diverse in character, and the diversity is due to the breaking up of the ideals of political and religious unity. This literature differs from that of the preceding age in three marked ways, one it has no unity of spirit, as in the days of Elizabeth, resulting from the patriotic enthusiasm of all classes, two in contrast with the hopefulness and vigor of Elizabethan writings. Much of the literature of this period is somber in character, it saddens rather than inspires us. 3. It has lost the romantic impulse of youth, and become critical and intellectual, it makes us think, rather than feel deeply. In our study we have noted one the transition poets, of whom Daniel is chief, to the songwriters, Campion and Breton, 3. The Spencerian poets, with and Giles Fletcher, for the metaphysical poets, Dunn and Herbert, 5. The Cavalier poets, Herrick, Carew, Lovelace, and Suckling, 6. John Milton, His Life his early or Horton poems, his militant prose, and his last great poetical works, 7 John Bunyan, his extraordinary life, and his chief work, The Pilgrim's Progress, 8 The Minor Prose Writers, Burton, Brown, Fuller, Taylor, 
Baxter, and Walton. Three books selected from this group are Brown's Religio Medici, Taylor's Holy Living and Dying, and Walton's Complete Angler. Selections for Reading, Milton, Paradise Lost, Books 1-2, L'Allegro, Il Penseroso, Comus, Licitas, and Selected Sonnets, all in Standard English Classics, same poems, more or less complete, in various other series, Areopagitica and Treatises on Education, Selections, in Manly's English Prose, or Areopagitica in Arbor's English Reprints, Clarendon Crest Series, Morley's Universal Library, etc. Minor Poets, Selections from Herrick, edited by Hale, in Athenaeum Press Series, Selections from Herrick, Lovelace, Dunn, Herbert, etc. in Manley's English Poetry, Golden Treasury, Oxford Book of English Verse, etc. Von Silex Siblings, in Temple Classics, also in the Aldine Series, Herbert's The Temple, in Every Man's Library, Temple Classics, etc. Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress, in Standard English Classics, Pocket Classics, etc. Grace Abounding, in Castle's National Library, Minor Prose Writers, Wentworth Selections from Jeremy Taylor, Brown's Religio Medici, Walton's Complete Angler, both in Every Man's Library, Temple Classics, etc. Selections from Taylor, Brown, and Walton in Manley's English Prose, also in Garnet's English Prose, Bibliography, History, Textbook, Montgomery, pages 238-257, Cheney, pages 431-464, Green, Chapter 8, Trail, Gardner, Special Works, Waitling Skin and Parliament Oxford Manuals, Gardner's The First Two Stuarts and the Puritan Revolution, Tullock's English Puritanism and its Leaders, Lives of Cromwell by Harrison, by Church, and by Morley, Carlyle's Oliver Cromwell's Letters and Speeches, Literature. Saints Bearbury's Elizabethan literature extends to 1660, Masterman's The Age of Milton, Doughton's Puritan and Anglican, Milton, Texts, Poetical Works, Globe Edition, edited by Masson, Cambridge Poets Edition, edited by Moody, English Prose Writings, edited by Morley, in Carisbrook Library, also in Bond's Standard Library, Masson's Life of John Milton 8 Balls, Life, by Garnet, by Pattison English Men of Letters, Raleigh's Milton, Trent's John Milton, Corson's Introduction to Milton, Brooks Milton, in Students' Library, Macaulay's Milton, Lowell's Essays, in Among My Books, and in Latest Literary Essays, M. Arnold's Essay, in Essays in Criticism, Doughton's Essay, in Puritan and Anglican, Cavalier Poets, Schelling's 17th Century Lyrics, in Athenaeum Press Series, Cavalier and Courtier Lyrists, in Canterbury Poets Series, Gosses Jacobean Poets, Lovelace, etc. In Library of Old Authors, Dunn, Poems, in Muses Library, Life, in Walton's Lives, in Temple Classics, and in Morley's Universal Library, Life, by Goss, Jessup's John Dunn, Doughton's Essay, in New Studies, Stephen's Studies of a Biographer, Volume 3, Herbert, Palmer's George Herbert, Poems and Prose Selections, edited by Arachis, in Canterbury Poets, Doughton's Essay, in Puritan and Anglican, Bunyan, Brown's John Bunyan, His Life, Times, and Works, Life, by Venables, and by Through the English Men of Letters, Essays by Macaulay, by Doughton, Supra, and by Woodbury, in Makers of Literature, Jeremy Taylor, Holy Living, Holy Dying, in Temple Classics, and in Bond's Standard Library, Selections, 
edited by Wentworth, Life, by Heber, and by Goss English Men of Letters, Doughton's Essay, Supra, Thomas Brown, Works, edited by Wilkin, the same, in Temple Classics, and in Bond's Library, Religio Medici, in Every Man's Library, Essay by Pater, in Appreciations, by Doughton, Supra, and by L. Stephen, in Hours in a Library, Life, by Goss English Men of Letters, Isaac Walton, Works, in Temple Classics, Castle's Library, and Morley's Library, Introduction, in A. Langs Walton's Complete Angler, Lowell's Essay, in Latest Literary Essays, Suggestive Questions, 1. What is meant by the Puritan period? What word are the objects and the results of the Puritan movement in English history? 2. What are the main characteristics of the literature of this period? Compare it with Elizabethan literature. How did religion and politics affect Puritan literature? Can you quote any passages or name any works which justify your opinion? 3. What is meant by the terms Cavalier Poets, Spenserian Poets, Metaphysical Poets? Name the chief writers of each group, to whom are we indebted for our first English hymn book. Would you call this a work of literature? Why? 4. What are the qualities of Herrick's poetry? What marked contrasts are found in Herrick and in nearly all the poets of this period? 5. Who was George Herbert? For what purpose did he write? What qualities are found in his poetry? 6. Tell briefly the story of Milton's life. What are the three periods of his literary work? What is meant by the Horton poems? Compare, L'Allegro and I.L. Penseroso. Are there any Puritan ideals in, Comus? Why is, Lycidas, often put at the summit of English lyrical poetry? Give the main idea or argument of Paradise Lost. What are the chief qualities of the poem? Describe in outline Paradise Regained and Samson Agonists. What personal element entered into the latter? What quality strikes you most forcibly in Milton's poetry? What occasioned Milton's prose works? Do they properly belong to literature? Why? Compare Milton and Shakespeare with regard to one knowledge of men. Two ideals of life. Three purpose in writing. Seven. Tell the story of Bunyan's life. What unusual elements are found in his life and writings. Give the main argument of the Pilgrim's Progress. If you read the story before studying literature, tell why you liked or disliked it. Why is it a work for all ages and for all races? What are the chief qualities of Bunyan's style? 8. Who are the minor prose writers of this age? Name the chief works of Jeremy Taylor, Thomas Brown, and Isaac Walton. Can you describe from your own reading any of these works? How does the prose of this age compare in interest with the poetry? Milton Island of course, accepted in this comparison. Chronology 17th Century History Literature 1621. Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy 1623. Wither's Hymn Book 1625. Charles I. Parliament Dissolved 1628. Petition of Right 1629. Milton's Ode on the Nativity 1630-1640. Kin Rules Without Parliament. Puritan Migration to New England 1630-1633. Herbert's Poems 1630-1637, Milton's Horton Poems 1640, Long Parliament 1642, Civil War Begins 1642, Brown's Religio Medici 1643, Scotch Covenant 1643, Press Censorship 1644, Milton's Areopagitica 1645, Battle of Naseby, Triumph of Puritans 1649. Execution of Charles I. Cavalier Migration to Virginia 1649-1660. Commonwealth 1649. 
Milton's tenure of Kings 1650, Baxter's Saints Rest, Jeremy Taylor's Holy Living 1651, Hobbes's Leviathan 1653-1658, Cromwell, Protector 1653, Walton's Complete Angler 1658-1660, Richard Cromwell 1660, Restoration of Charles II 1663-1694, Dryden's Dramas Next Chapter 1666, Bunyan's Grace Abounding 1667, Paradise Lost 1674, Death of Milton 1678, Pilgrim's Progress Published Written Earlier Chapter The III Period of the Restoration 1660-1700 The Age of French Influence History of the Period It seems a curious contradiction, at first glance, to place the return of Charles II at the beginning of modern England, as our historians are wont to do, for there was never a time when the progress of liberty, which history records, was more plainly turned backwards. The Puritan regime had been too severe, it had repressed too many natural pleasures. Now, released from restraint, society abandoned the decencies of life and the reverence for law itself, and plunged into excesses more unnatural than had been the restraints of Puritanism. The inevitable effect of excess is disease, and for almost an entire generation following the Restoration, in 1660, England lay sick of a fever, socially, politically, morally. London suggests an Italian city in the days of the Medici, and its literature, especially its drama, often seems more like the delirium of illness than the expression of a healthy mind, but even a fever has its advantages, whatever impurity is in the blood is burned and purged away, and a man rises from fever with a new strength and a new idea of the value of life, like King Hezekiah, who after his sickness and fear of death resolved to go softly all his days. The Restoration was the great crisis in English history, and that England lived through it was due solely to the strength and excellence of that Puritanism which she thought she had flung to the winds when she welcomed back a vicious monarch at Dover. The chief lesson of the Restoration was this, that it showed by awful contrast the necessity of truth and honesty, and of a strong government of free men, for which the Puritan had stood like a rock in every hour of his rugged history. Through fever, England came slowly back to health through gross corruption in society and in the state England learned that her people were at heart sober, sincere, religious folk, and that their character was naturally too strong to follow after pleasure and be satisfied, so Puritanism suddenly gained all that it had struggled for, and gained it even in the hour when all seemed lost, when Milton in his sorrow unconsciously portrayed the government of Charles and his cabal in that tremendous scene of the Council of the Infernal Peers in Pandemonium plotting the ruin of the world, of the king and his followers it is difficult to write temperately. Most of the dramatic literature of the time is atrocious, and we can understand it only as we remember the character of the court and society for which it was written, and speakably vile in his private life. The king had no redeeming patriotism, no sense of responsibility to his country for even his public acts. He gave high offices to blackguards, stole from the exchequer like a common thief played off Catholics and Protestants against each other, disregarding his pledges to both alike, broke his solemn treaty with the Dutch and with his own ministers, and betrayed his country for French money to spend on his own pleasures. It is useless to paint the dishonor of a court which followed daily after such a leader. The first parliament, while it contained some noble and patriotic members, was dominated by young men who remembered the excess of Puritan zeal but forgot the despotism and injustice which had compelled Puritanism to stand up and assert the manhood of England. 
these young politicians vied with the king in passing laws for the subjugation of church and state, and in their thirst for revenge upon all who had been connected with Cromwell's iron government, once more a wretched formalism that perpetual danger to the English church came to the front and exercised authority over the free churches. The House of Lords was largely increased by the creation of hereditary titles and estates for ignoble men and shameless women who had flattered the king's vanity. Even the bench, that last strong refuge of English justice, was corrupted by the appointment of judges, like the brutal Jeffreys, whose aim, like that of their royal master, was to get money and to exercise power without personal responsibility. Amid all this dishonor the foreign influence and authority of Cromwell's strong government vanished like smoke. The valiant little Dutch navy swept the English fleet from the sea, and only the thunder of Dutch guns in the Thames, under the very windows of London, awoke the nation to the realization of how low it had fallen. Two considerations must modify our judgment of this disheartening spectacle. First, the king and his court are not England, though our histories are largely filled with the records of kings and soldiers of intrigues and fighting, these no more express the real life of a people than fever and delirium express a normal manhood, though kin and court and high society arouse our disgust or pity, records are not wanting to show that private life in England remained honest and pure even in the worst days of the restoration, while London society might be entertained by the degenerate poetry of Rochester and the dramas of Dryden and Wycherley, English scholars hailed Milton with delight, and the common people followed Bunyan and Baxter with their tremendous appeal to righteousness and liberty. Second, the king, with all his pretensions to divine right, remained only a figurehead, and the Anglo-Saxon people, when they tire of one figurehead, have always the will and the power to throw it overboard and choose a better one. The country was divided into two political parties, the Whigs, who sought to limit the royal power in the interests of Parliament and the people, and the Tories who strove to check the growing power of the people in the interests of their hereditary rulers. Both parties, however, were largely devoted to the Anglican Church, and when James I.I., after four years of misrule, attempted to establish a national Catholicism by intrigues which aroused the protest of the Pope as well as of Parliament, then Whigs and Tories, Catholics and Protestants, united in England's last great revolution, the complete and bloodless revolution of 1688 which called William of Orange to the throne, was simply the indication of England's restored health and sanity. It proclaimed that she had not long forgotten, and could never again forget, the lesson taught her by Puritanism in its hundred years of struggle and sacrifice. Modern England was firmly established by the Revolution, which was brought about by the excesses of the Restoration. Literary Characteristics In the literature of the Restoration we note a sudden breaking away from old standards. Just as society broke away from the restraints of Puritanism, many of the literary men had been driven out of England with Charles and his court, or else had followed their patrons into exile in the days of the Commonwealth. On their return they renounced old ideals and demanded that English poetry and drama should follow the style to which they had become accustomed in the gaiety of Paris. We read with astonishment in Pepys's diary 1660-1669 that the age, 